welcome to episode number 34 of the Random Thoughts Podcast. That's R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com. I am your host, Darren O'Neill. On today's show, we're going to be talking about freedom of speech. We're going to be talking about what's been going on with a lot of purging, deplatforming, shutting down of users, whatever you want to call it. We're going to talk about how this is related to the Constitution and the First Amendment and try to bring a little bit of sanity and a little bit of perspective to a subject that seems to be getting out of control. We'll be looking at the legalities of all of these things and whether we think something needs to be done. God forbid, do we think the government needs to get more involved? Usually not a good thing, but maybe an answer here. I don't know. The latest news is that Facebook and Instagram are shutting down and purging what they are calling dangerous users. These include people like Alex Jones, Paul Joseph Watson, Laura Loomer, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, and Louis Farrakhan were the ones that were just purged from Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Twitter's been doing the same thing to people for a long time. James Woods, a very vocal conservative, is having problems on Twitter. Steven Crowder, also a conservative guy, dealing with all sorts of hassles from YouTube where people are filing copyright complaints and stuff on them, even though it's a bunch of BS. But let's look at first what is going on with Facebook and Instagram. A lot of people know that Alex Jones has been deplatformed from a few other things recently. We know that his site InfoWars isn't always the epitome of good Journalism, but that's not what we're talking about here entirely. We're talking about people that are being removed from these services. And the question becomes are you doing society as a whole a service or a disservice by getting rid of these dangerous people? A lot of people on the right, while all these conservatives have been having issues with these social media sites, always used to call out, hey, what about Farrakhan? Well, they finally got Farrakhan too. And I don't know if that's a good thing either, because there's something in my brain that tells me you're getting into a dangerous place when you're letting companies or the government decide who can have a voice and who can't. Why did Facebook get rid of all these people, you know, and Instagram? Because that's a Facebook company, too, now. So it doesn't matter. It's not like you did something bad on Facebook. You'll now get kicked off of Instagram at the same time. If you're a user of both, you do something bad on one. You get kicked off on both. A Facebook spokesperson said, and I quote, we've always banned individuals or organizations that promote or engage in violence and hate, regardless of ideology. The process for evaluating potential violators is extensive, and it is what led to our decision to remove these accounts today. Do they ever give specific reasons why these people are being deplatformed? I don't think so. I've never seen it. And if I'm missing it, feel free to let me know. But I don't think they do. And I would think maybe that would be if you want to be transparent, at least about what you're doing, maybe give people a list of the infringements. I mean, you have the data there. So if it was an infringing post, put that post up and be like, nope, this was what did it. This is what was bad. You see what they did here. This was wrong. This violates our terms of service, the ever-changing terms of service with all of these places, which is another problem. I mean, every one of us that's on one of these social media sites, unless you're a masochist, 
you just went down the screen, you scrolled through and you clicked. Yes, I agree to your terms of service. I don't think anybody except a very few have actually read those. And they change all the time. So the rules that you're playing by today may be totally null and void tomorrow when they change the rules. So building a business on any of these companies' backbones is a very dangerous thing. If you don't control the way your information is getting out there, you have a really good chance of being turned off, which is why podcasting is great. MP3 files are small. You can always find somebody else to host those files. You can move them around. You can take care of your business entirely by yourself. These people that have built a whole empire, that have built a full-time living out of doing things like YouTube videos, I appreciate what they're doing, and I kind of feel bad for them because that could go away in an instant. YouTube has the complete right to pull that plug right now and say, we don't like you for whatever reason whatsoever, because they're not a government. They don't have to play by any rules. It's a, it's a private company, and by every right, they can do whatever they want. The question is, then, will everybody stay and continue to use those services? And the other question is why there's not a bunch of other services popping up. And when they do, in the case of Twitter, there are alternatives out there. There is the Mastodon, which is the open source, which a bunch of people can, everybody can put up their own server and they all talk to each other as part of a Fediverse, they call it. And then you have a place like Gab, which is the, the, the version of Twitter, the same kind of a messaging app, but completely freedom of speech. But the amount of people that are on Gab and the amount of people that are on Mastodon are way, way, way less than what are on Twitter. So these are the problems that we have to look at. If you're going to say, well, these are private companies, they can do what they want. And I, I back that to a certain amount, but these companies have to realize, and we have to realize, that what these services have become are the equivalent to the town hall years ago, the meeting place. This is the equivalent of the media. These are the ways people are getting their viewpoints out there. And if you silence somebody online, you may as well be completely cutting out their voice because this is how people communicate. On Twitter, at least the offending tweet was given to James Woods. He was locked out of Twitter when the Mueller report came out for posting this tweet. And it's in quotes If you try to kill the king, you better not miss, then hashtag hang them all. That got him booted from Twitter. And Twitter, I mean, these may be the worst group of human beings that police their service that I have ever run across. When the Judge Roy Moore thing was going on, you know, I really, I get into the minutia of words. And when the Roy Moore thing came out, he was being attacked on a whole bunch of different fronts, and his behavior may have been questionable, and his choices may have been questionable, but people were calling him a pedophile because he dated a 16-year-old girl when he was 35 or something like that. And I pointed out the fact that's not the meaning of the word. Pedophile does not put you in the 16-year, 15-year, and uprange Pedophile is young, prepubescent kids. And to me, that annoyed me because the, nobody was correcting this when he was being called a pedophile. I made that point, 
And months later, in a completely different conversation, I was having a debate with somebody and disagreed with them. And they looked back in my Twitter timeline, as people are tend to do. And because I had posted pictures of a couple of girls, models, actresses that were 15 or 16 and said, look, this is not a young kid. Because the way girls like post these Instagram photos now, they're looking like, you know, Playboy models at 15 and 16. I'm like, these aren't kids. This isn't what you're talking about when you're talking pedophile. You're talking children. We're talking infants through, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old. There's a line in there somewhere, but 15 and 16 has crossed that line. Not saying it's not creepy behavior, but that's not what the word meant. But somebody went back into my Twitter timeline and saw that I was arguing the use of that word, and they called me a pedophile because I had posted these pictures of a 15 and 16-year-old model or actress and said, well, obviously you were thinking of them in a sexual way. And I'm like, really? That doesn't really make sense. I was making the point that they weren't prepubescent girls. And I went to Twitter and I complained, and I'm like, this fucking asshole is calling me a pedophile. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. They're like, well, you know, we look at everything. We look at the context of what things are in. And I'm like, there's no fucking context when somebody's calling you a pedophile. But Twitter doesn't fucking care. They really don't fucking care. And the thing you'll notice is that this system is not equally applied. There is no doubt in these deplatformings, in these purging of dangerous users, a vast majority of them just happen to be people with conservative viewpoints. I mean, I know there's somebody out there that's much better in math than I am, but uh, when 90 some odd percent, it seems, of these people are on the conservative side, I have a feeling there's a political ideology coming in in these deplatformings and that it's not really based upon bad behavior or somebody saying something that goes above and beyond. Because most of these people, all of these people, except maybe Louis Farrakhan, I don't think they really ever are out there calling for violence. I don't think they're out there really pushing hate. But we need, again, to look at what the definition of this, because this definition of hate speech goes back to my annoyance with bullying, because we live in a world where people are going to stay stupid shit. And the question is going to become how much or what do you have to say? What magic word do you have to hit to be thrown off of these platforms? This isn't something that is happening organically. There are people behind it. They're the same people that are behind people like AOC. Because you go back a year, year and a half ago, nobody knew who AOC was. And now she has the power of like the mafia behind her to try to get the Democrats that don't want to vote in line with her to threaten them. So you have to look at where the money is. You have to look at the who is putting these people in power. You have to take a long look at places like Media Matters and the Southern Poverty Law Center to really start getting an idea of what viewpoints are behind this and what the end goal actually is. Because this is not, oh, people just saying horrible, hateful things on Facebook or Twitter and anything like that. This is going after an ideology. And it's it's not the same for the leftists. And I was like, okay, I'm doing a little bit of research on this. And, you know, I hate to do research. 
And this is from a Breitbart article, and you can tell me that Breitbart sucks, and that's fine. They're not going to say I would believe everything that I read on Breitbart. But there was a list of things that have happened on social media in the recent past that didn't cause people to get banned or deplatformed. If there's any of these that are wrong, again, feel free to reach out and tell me. But I believe these are all accurate. It says Twitter allowed a number of verified accounts, and a lot of them were the actors and actresses and the crazy social justice warriors that like to scream. Twitter allowed a number of verified accounts to participate in the doxing and violent threats against the teenagers of Covington Catholic High School in January. I remember this very clearly. People were coming out and like, who was this kid? Tell me where he lives. And these are like, again, people with the little blue check mark. I don't believe a single one of them was booted or deplatformed. Senator Susan Collins was on the receiving end of some vicious sexist Twitter abuse after she defended Brett Kavanaugh during the Supreme Court hearings. I don't believe anybody was deplatformed for that. Don't believe anybody was silenced by Twitter. It's kind of funny because that would seem to be the hate you were looking for if you're getting vicious sexist attacks on Twitter. But, you know, hey, they agreed with the people's politics that were attacking her. So Susan Collins didn't get any help from the nice folks over at Twitter. Actor Peter Fonda, if you could really still even call him an actor, I guess maybe one day back in the day he was in a few things and somebody gave a crap about his you know little career. But Peter Fonda said that Baron Trump, you know, son of Donald Trump, should be taken away and put into a cage with pedophiles. I mean, that's not hateful at all, is it? If that's not hate speech, I don't know. He also called for Kirsten Nelson to Nielsen to be whipped. He later apologized. Well, I guess it's nice that he apologized, but he wasn't booted from Twitter or blocked from Twitter for saying that the president's son should be put into a cage with pedophiles. But James Woods quotes something saying, if you try to kill the king, you better not miss. Hashtag hang them all. Well, that's hateful to Twitter. I mean, that's hateful. Put a kid into a cage with pedophiles. That's fine. Called somebody a pedophile for no apparent reason. That's not even libelous. Twitter applauds them, says it's okay because as long as the guy being called a pedophile isn't a def- leftist Democrat, well, then it's, it's fair game. I, I contend that if you try this on somebody on the, if you start tweeting, say, you know, Barack Obama calling him a pedophile, let me know how long before Twitter blocks your account, how long before you're deplatformed. I'm guessing. It's not going to be a long time. Jim Carrey, oh, bastion of sanity that this bastard is. He posted a drawing of Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. getting bludgeoned to death by an elephant. That was in 2016. The uh, the tweet's still up. And uh, various accounts also called for and cheered on the shooting of police officers. Also completely fine to Twitter. Congratulations, you guys are doing a bang up job. The problem is, this is the Amazon and eBay concept, which is once a site gets started, once everybody is there, it's really hard to get people to change to a different service. And we're seeing that. So, how do we treat things like Twitter and Facebook that are the behemoths of the day that have turned into our town square, but now are being run by people? that are pushing an ideology on them. And this goes a lot further 
than just normal people being out there saying stupid things. You know, there should be some way to kind of control that, but obviously there's no oversight on Twitter and their Gestapo tactics are not doing anybody any good except the one side that they're, I guess, pushing their political ideology. In an age now where we're dealing with media that is ever changing, the mainstream media is getting much smaller. The amount of people that you would consider journalists are gone way, way down. We have a lot of people, myself included, who are opinion people. I mean, I do some research, but I'm not going to tell you I'm an investigative journalist. And there's a lot of people now that are kind of putting themselves off as such when they're giving you nothing more than an opinion. They're either skewing something to one side, they're reporting only a certain part of a quote, they're making sure that the data they give you is only the data that they want you to hear. And we're in an age now, in an information age, where citizen journalism is vital. And citizen journalism is happening on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. This is where citizen journalism is happening. And these people are being silenced, not for the reasons they're giving. This isn't about hate speech, unless hate speech is what you're considering something I don't want to hear. It's interesting because the hatred to me, and I know I'm biased, but if you look at the posts on Twitter and Facebook and all of these places online from the left about Donald Trump, that's where the hate's living. That's where a vast majority of the hate is living. But I never see any of that taken down. And we first started, you know, well, it can't be hate speech. You can't say anything about the protected groups. You know, you can't say anything bad about anybody that's black. Well, that was a bad, that was a group for a while. Well, you can't say anything bad about the gays. You can't say anything bad about the homosexual. These are where the hate crimes came from. But that's not how it's being enforced anymore. It's all about pushing a specific ideology. And that is certainly not going by what the law of the land is. So the law of the land, when you talk about free speech, is the First Amendment of the Constitution. And let me read the First Amendment to you. Well, that's probably a good place to start this little segment here. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So we're talking freedom of speech here. Most speech today, I don't think I'm pushing any uh, great boundary here saying most freedom, most speech today is happening online. Most people do a lot more speaking online than they do in person. This is just the way our system works now. If you're allowing companies like Facebook and Twitter to silence certain people, that's a problem. The case can be made that they're a private company and they can do whatever they want. And while I want to agree with that vehemently, I also understand we're living in a time where there seem to be no alternatives to these big services. Meaning if there were like 20 different Facebooks out there, well, then, yeah, you don't have a problem if somebody gets deplatformed and one, you got 19 other ones to go to. If there's 20 different Twitters out there, 
the same thing. But when these singular services are being taken over, when these singular services are becoming the new town square and the new place that people go to debate things, to share ideas, then the ability to shut somebody off needs to be closely monitored and needs to have some kind of oversight because these guys, again, when they do this stuff, it's not like you could go and say, okay, James Woods, he got banned from Twitter for something. I can click on a button on James Woods profile and see he's currently banned because of this. No, they do this stuff in the dark of night. They don't put the reasons out. They don't want you to know. And 99% of the time, it's because the reasons are probably not enough to ban them, but people can't do a damn thing about it. You can't fight Twitter. You can't fight Facebook and Instagram. You just can't. I mean, you can scream until you're blue in the face, but legally, if there's nothing you can do to go after them, then you can't do anything to go after them. So the question starts becoming, does the First Amendment apply to things like Twitter and Facebook? Should they apply to something like Twitter and Facebook? Because in the First Amendment, we're talking about freedom of speech, and obviously that is what's going on on these services. I don't think there's any question about it. Again, we talked about in a previous show that a judge in San Francisco decided it was under your First Amendment protection for you to take a dump in the street. So I think we can pretty safely say that posting online should also be part of your First Amendment rights. Of course, there could be companies that aren't based in the United States, and this is why everybody wants a big one world government, and that's another debate all down the big rabbit hole. But all of these companies that we're talking about at this point anyway, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of these companies are based in the United States. So I think at least that United States law should have something to say about that. Freedom of the press is also talked about in the First Amendment. And a lot of press is using these sites as well, and not just the mainstream media. It doesn't say the First Amendment that you can't abridge the freedom of the press. It doesn't say, you know, unless you're just one guy and then you're not, no, you're not important enough. You're not a big news organization. No, the press back when this was written was somebody printing pamphlets. So this is not like, hey, we have to protect CNN. We have to protect Fox. We have to protect MSNBC. The freedom of the press, I would argue, is every one of you that has ever posted anything online about any news story. You know, if you posted, hey, I just saw a traffic accident down the street, you're now a journalist. So the question becomes the First Amendment says you can't infringe upon the freedom of speech, you can't infringe on the press. That seems to be covered. And the First Amendment says you have to be allowed to peaceably assemble. Well, when this was written, there was no way to peaceably, or there was no way to assemble peacefully or otherwise except to get together in person. There were no phones. So the way people got together to talk, they had to do it physically. We don't have that problem anymore. We can assemble online. And where do we assemble online now? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we're allowing these companies, these tech companies, to infringe upon all of these parts of the First Amendment. Your freedom of speech, your freedom of the press, your freedom of assembly. All of them are being trampled on by these companies because they're privately owned. 
And again, I can make the argument both ways. And I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I can tell you that something stinks at this point where the place everybody goes to communicate that people are being banned, purged, deplatformed, whatever you want to call it. And I was doing a little bit of research, and you know how much I hate that. But I came across a site called the Constitutional Rights Foundation. And I found some information. I start doing a little bit of reading, and I realize that what we're dealing with today with all of these deplatformings really aren't all that different with things that were happening in 1798, which again is why I believe that these founding fathers that put our country together, that wrote these original documents, were way smarter than people are still giving them credit for today. So let me read you a little bit about the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. And if you want to check out this website for the Constitutional Rights Foundation, you can do so at crf-usa.org. The Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 challenged the Bill of Rights, but ultimately led to a new American definition of freedom of the speech, of freedom of speech and the press. John Adams, he was the second president of the United States. He came in after George Washington. He was a Federalist. And the Federalists all believed that once you were elective, once you got into office, Nobody should publicly criticize you. And this is kind of the way it was back at the time in England. But of course, you know, we had a little war with England and, and wanted to get out from underneath their thumb and build this whole new country we call the United States of America. But in England, that was the way it is. You didn't criticize your leaders. You want to criticize your leaders, you'll go to jail or you'll just wind up dead. The Federalist Party was led by Alexander Hamilton, and he aimed to create a stable and secure country safe for business, wealthy men of property. The opposition, the Democratic-Republican Party, was bitterly opposed to the Federalists. It was led by Thomas Jefferson, and it tended to represent the poor farmers, craftsmen, and recent immigrants. The party was commonly referred to as the Republicans or the Jeffersonians, but it was the forerunner of today's Democratic Party. So the names aren't really that important here, but what you basically had then was a party, the Federalists, who everybody thought was just for the businesses and the wealthy men. And then you had the Jeffersonians or the Republicans or the Republican Democrats, whatever they were calling it. And they were the ones for the poor. I mean, are we any different here? This is 1798. I don't think anything's really that much different. So the Federalists, who had seen what had gone on in the French Revolution in 1789, they saw that that led to mob rule, people's property being confiscated. The Republicans, though, supported the French Revolution because it came with all these new democratic ideas. In 1794, George Washington negotiated a treaty with England. He settled the differences between the two countries and the resulting improvement, it says, in the American-English relation angered the revolutionary French leaders who were enemies of Great Britain at the time. In the election of 1796, Federalist John Adams won the most electoral votes to become the president. Republican Thomas Jefferson came in second, which made him vice president, which was a great system back then, I think. I mean, it changed things entirely, but I'm not necessarily sure that original way of doing it 
was necessarily a bad thing unless you figured the president was going to be getting killed a lot more or something like that. The 12th Amendment did later change the way that that all worked, but it was an interesting time then where the guy that came in second in the voting was the vice president. There were no losers in those elections. You just got a slightly less cushy job. Shortly after becoming president, John Adams sent diplomats to France to smooth over the bad feelings, but the French representatives met secretly with diplomats and demanded $10 million in bribes, or they were going to, uh, they were threatening the United States with the power and violence of France. How much things have, have changed since then? I, I guess there was some power and violence in France back then. Maybe not so much anymore. The anger of this, the news of this affair enraged Americans. The Federalists immediately called for a war against France. President Adams only proposed, though, a uh, preparation for war and a land tax to help pay for these preparations. Republicans, which then became the Democrats, spoke out against war fever. So again, we had the warmongering Republicans and the peaceful Democrats, even way back in the 1700s, even though, you know, the names have changed, not much else has. War was never declared, but the Federalists increasingly were accusing Jefferson and the Republicans of being a traitorous French party. A leading Federalist newspaper proclaimed to the nation, he that is not for us is against us. And this all led to the Sedition Act. The sedition means inciting others to resist or rebel against lawful authority. Huh. So let's see, inciting others to resist or rebel against lawful authority. Like say the lawful authority of the president. Resist? I mean, wait, where have I heard resist? Resist, resist. Resist and rebel against lawful authority. This was going on in 1798. It sounds like this is what was going on and still is going on since Donald Trump became president. In England, seditious libel prohibited any criticism of the king or his officials. And English common law at the time held that any spoken or written words that found any fault with the king's government undermined the respect of the people for his authority. The U.S. Sedition Act first outlawed conspiracies, quote, to oppose any measure or measures of the government. Going further, the act made it illegal for anyone to express, quote, any false, scandalous and malicious writing. This sounds like fake news. 1798, make it illegal for anyone to express, quote, any false, scandalous, or malicious writing against Congress or the president. I mean, really, if we were to put everybody in jail today who has written anything false and scandalous or malicious about Congress or the president, holy cow, we're going to need to build a lot of new prisons for all these journalists, well, so-called journalists. Significantly, the act did not specifically protect the vice president, who, of course, was Thomas Jefferson. Additional language punished any spoken or published words that had, quote, bad intent to defame the government or cause the hatred of the people towards it. Again, what are we getting today? I mean, nobody's, nobody's got bad intent or stoking hatred for the government, right? These would all be people that would be going to jail back in the United States in 1798. These definitions of sedition were more specific than those found in the Great Britain common law. Even so, they were still broad enough to punish anyone who criticized the federal government, its laws, or its elected leaders. 
Unlike the English common law, the Sedition, the Sedition Act in the United States allowed the truth of the matter to be a defense. The act also left it to the jury to decide if a defendant had bad intent. Penalties, though, for different provisions of the law range from six months to five years in prison and a fine up to $5,000, which is around $100,000 in today's money. The Republican minority in Congress argued that sedition laws violated the First Amendment to the Constitution, which protects freedom of the speech and freedom of press. The Federalists countered by defining these freedoms in the very narrow English manner. According to English law, freedom of speech in the press only applied before the expression of ideas. The government couldn't censor or stop someone from saying something. But after those words had been printed or spoken back in England in the day, then the government could bring out their axe and punish people if they'd maliciously defamed the king or his government. The Federalist majority in Congress passed the Sedition Act, and President Adams signed it into law July 14th, 1798. It was set to expire on March 3rd, 1801, the last day of the first and only term of John Adams. So how did all of this go? It was basically an attack on the Republicans. The site further goes on saying that Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, who was in charge of enforcing the Alien and Sedition Acts, immediately began to read as many Republican newspapers as he could, looking for evidence of sedition against the president and Congress. In October of 1798, a Vermont Republican congressman, Matthew Lyon, became the first person to be put on trial under the sedition law. Like most Republicans, Lyon opposed going to war against France and objected to the land tax to pay for war preparations. Lyon wrote a letter that was published in a Republican newspaper criticizing President Adams for, quote, a continued grasp for power. At several public meetings, he also read aloud a letter written by poet Joel Barlow, who jokingly wondered why Congress had not ordered Adams to a madhouse. Wait, so people were saying that John Adams, the president, was nuts. He, he wasn't mentally capable of doing his job. Well, that sounds familiar again. Well, I can't figure out why. That sounds, that sounds very familiar. A federal ju grand jury indicted Lyon for intentionally stirring up hatred against the president. Unable to find a defense attorney for his trial, Lyon defended himself. The U.S. Marshal, a Federalist appointee, assembled a jury from Vermont towns that were Federalist strongholds. Lyon attempted to prove the truth of the words that he wrote and spoke as permitted by the Sedition Act, but this meant the burden of proof was on him. So this wasn't, you're innocent until proven guilty. This was, you're guilty unless you can prove that you're innocent. A little bit of a harder thing to do. Lyon had to prove that the words in question were true, rather than the prosecutor having to prove them false. Lyon also argued that he was only expressing his political opinions, which he said should not be subject to the truth test. <laughs> I wish we had some more truth tests today, let me tell you. The jury found Lyon guilty of expressing seditious words with, quote, bad intent. And the judge, guess what, also a Federalist, Sentenced him to four months in jail, a $1,000 fine, and court costs. Lyon ran for re-election to Congress from his jail cell and won. Vermont supporters petitioned President Adams to release and pardon him, but Adams refused. 
When Lyon was released from jail, he was welcomed home a hero in his Vermont hometown and was cheered along the route that he took while he journeyed to Congress. Once he returned to Congress, the Federalists tried to expel him as a convicted criminal, but this effort failed. This really does seem like this could be right out of the playbook for what is going on today. A guy got elected. We don't like him. He's a crook. Get rid of him. Didn't work. Didn't stop him from trying, and it's not stopping him from trying to do the same stuff over and over again. Maybe this is why the left is so intent for us to forget history. Because if we look back through history, we can see that these kind of things fail over and over again. Maybe we should look at things like socialism and communism. I'm just saying it's not a bad idea. 13 more indictments were brought under the Sedition Act, mostly against editors and publishers of Republican newspapers. Those evils, evil Republicans, even back then, of course, they turned into the Democrats, but they flipped a few times. If you've listened to the No Agenda show, you know the Republicans and Democrats have flipped a few times. Some Republican newspapers were forced to close down and many others were too intimidated to criticize the government. This sounds a lot like what's going on today. You say the wrong thing, you get shut down. Except then you were printing pamphlets, and today you're dealing with digital bits and bytes that are going across the thing called the internet. One Republican was convicted of sedition for publishing a pro Jefferson campaign pamphlet that accused President Adams of appointing corrupt judges and ambassadors. Two men were found guilty of raising a liberty pole and putting a sign on it that said, downfall to the tyrants of america another was arrested but never tried for circulating a petition to repeal the alien and sedition act themselves and a drunk was fined 150 dollars for insulting president adams I wonder what trump could get if he was able to find people even 150 bucks which this was that's big bucks if you're considering the exchange rate from 1798 to now but if you could find everybody 150 dollars for insulting the president hey Here's how we fix our tax problem. Here's how we fix our debt. Go after everybody that's insulting the president. In the most bizarre case, the Federalists in the United States Senate formed a special committee to investigate a Republican editor, William Duane. Republicans had leaked to him a Federalist proposal to change how presidential electoral votes were counted. Duane had printed the law and written editorials announcing it. When summoned to the Senate to face charges of writing false, scandalous, defamatory, and malicious assertions, he went into hiding and secretly continued writing for the newspaper. Does this sound like Julian Assange, maybe, to anybody? Somebody that got information leaked to him, printed it, and then had to go into hiding? This is 1798, or is it 2019? I'm not really sure because it seems like we're repeating a lot of the same things over and over again. But what this whole ordeal did do was let everybody come to an agreement, at least somewhat, on what the freedom of the speech and freedom of the press meant. The Alien and Sedition Acts provoked a debate between the Republicans and Federalist state legislatures over freedom of speech and the press. In a resolution he wrote for the Virginia legislator, James Madison argued that the Sedition Act attacked the, quote, right of freely examining public characters and measures, and of free communications among the people. In the heavily Federalist Massachusetts, state legislators responded that a sedition law was wise and necessary 
to defend against secret attacks by foreign or domestic enemies. Wait, attacks by foreign enemies? You mean like, you make. Russian, like uh, uh, coming after the collusion and Russians in our elections. Oh, I'm sorry. It's almost just even too crazy to to put all of these kind of pieces together. The Federalists in Congress issued a report accepting the old English common law definition of free speech in the press. It argued that the First Amendment only stopped the government from censoring beforehand any speeches or writings. The government argued the Federalists should be able to protect itself from any false and malicious words. Congressman John Nichols, a Republican from Virginia, challenged this Federalist view. He asserted that Americans must have a free flow of information in order to elect leaders and to judge them once they're in office. I mean, that seems to make sense, right? Isn't this what we're now dealing with? Isn't this, if you want to look at what's going on with this deplatforming? on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Don't we want a free flow of information? Why are we worried about what people are saying? I don't agree with Louis Farrakhan. I mean, I think he says some really hateful, really scary stuff, but I don't want him silenced. I mean, why should his words be scary? Don't you want to know what he's saying? I mean, why do you want him to go underground? And then really, that's maybe the next question is, what is the next step for these people that are being deplatformed? Well, now he's talking to people in private. If these words that he's saying are so dangerous that they can't be printed or they can't be reproduced in audio or video online, then maybe this guy shouldn't be allowed to talk to anybody at all. Maybe he should be executed. Is this where we're going with this kind of stuff? Because I would rather know what somebody's thinking. I would rather let them say whatever they want and be able to make up my own mind. I would rather have the information. Silencing people is what worries me, not hearing idiots or racists or hate-filled people speak. That doesn't bother me because I will know what they are, and I can make my own mind up. I think you probably can make your own mind up. So who are these deplatformings really helping unless, you know, they're trying to get somebody elected? John Nichols asked why government, which should be critically examined for its policies and decisions, should have the power to punish speakers and the press for doing nothing but informing the voters. And that's a real question, isn't it? Because up to this point, the government was the only one that could silence you. We've now created with technology a way that people can be silenced without the government. Huh. If I was into conspiracy theories, I would kind of lead you down another rabbit hole and start asking who's really making these decisions to deplatform and how are they related to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube? And how are they related to politicians of either side, countries? Who are these backers that are giving them all the money to do all of these things? Whose agenda are they pushing? And when will we say, We've had enough of this bullshit of silencing people and just say, we can handle it. Let them say what they want. I can make up my own mind. This article ends with, in the end, the people settled this debate in 1800 by electing Thomas Jefferson president and a Republican majority to Congress. In his inaugural address, Jefferson confirmed the new definition of free speech and the press 
as the right of Americans, quote, to think freely and to speak and write what they think. I think Thomas Jefferson might be a little disappointed with what's going on in America today, as I think we should all be disappointed and worried that these things are now completely out of our hands. They're out of the hands of the government, and they're now in control of entities that seem to be pushing a dangerous political ideology while labeling all of their opponents as pushing a dangerous political ideology. Kind of reminds you, if you were kids, if you had a brother or sister, and one of you did something and your parents came in like, who did that? And you both pointed at each other. That's kind of what's going on here. And it's not good. It's not good at all, folks. So it's interesting to see, as I went down this rabbit hole doing research, and it always leads to more work, but it was interesting to see what happened in the late 1700s. And the more I read, the more I saw similarities as far as what was going on today. Sure. Then we didn't have all of this tech and we didn't have other people in control. And I don't think who's in control really makes a difference. I think we need to look at the concepts. We need to look at the bigger pictures. And we have to start asking ourselves when you start allowing people to be deplatformed, when you start allowing people to be removed from these services that everybody is taking as a right as everybody is taking as the current place to communicate, who do we want making the decisions on who gets to speak and who doesn't? It's the authoritarian, scary government types that want to silence people. People who are for freedom do not want to silence anyone. If you hear somebody saying that somebody should be booted from one of these sites, most likely they're not into freedom because the people who are into freedom would rather let the Louis Farrakhan's and the Alex Joneses speak, listen to what they say, and most likely point and laugh and say, listen to this idiot. The people that want to silence are the ones you might want to take a little bit of a closer look at their motivations. You might not like what you find. Because you may be the person they're coming for next. I'm, I'm probably on the list. But I'm on the no agenda stream. So I can't be deplatformed. Well, at least nowhere in the near term. And I'm happy about that. And I'm glad about that. And God bless Void Zero, Mark Von Dyke, and Sir Bemrose, the guys that run the no agenda stream. And God bless Adam Curry, John C. Dvorak for putting out a podcast that uh, actually gives you honest news coverage and breaks down exactly who's lying to you and why it's a great show i'm assuming that most of the people that listen to my podcast listen to no agenda but if you don't i highly recommend that you check it out i hope you like what you've been hearing on the random thoughts podcast if you do and you feel like you want to give us a little value for the value we've given you there is now a button on our website randomthoughts.com r-a-n-d-u-m-b thoughts.com where you can make a donation to the show. doesn't have to be big. Anything to let us know you want us to keep doing the shows. If you like what you're hearing, if you don't like what you're hearing, you can always email me, randomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at random, R-A-N-D-U-M-B podcast, or my personal account, Darren O'Neill, D-A-R-R-E-N-O-N-E-I-L-L. -L. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening. It's always fun to get a chance to rant. Until next time, I am Darren O'Neill. 